Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Thank you for allowing me to be gone these last two weeks. I'm happy to report that we have successfully married off another child. And we're working on one more. So, uh, and I want to say thank you to Pastor Travis for taking care of everything while we were gone. I know he did a fantastic job and that you appreciate him so much. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series uh, on um, uh, called The Next Step in Spiritual Formation, talking about our, our spiritual growth. And as we've been making our way through some of these topics, this morning we come to the topic of, of worship. Now, uh, the question is, what, what is worship? Uh, how would you define Worship. If I were to go around the room and say, what is worship? Would you have a, a ready definition for worship? Would it come flowing out? Would it be easy to, uh, to define for you? Well, uh, it's not always very easy for people to define worship. But, uh, I want to begin this morning with some misconceptions about worship. What worship is not. Seven misconceptions. The first misconception is that worship is when we come together on church, at church on Sundays. In fact, we call this, you know, worship right now. Well, now, it may be worship or it may not be worship. It depends upon our heart. I mean, anything and everything that we do in here could be worship. You know, I, I'm pretty sure some people that were singing this morning were really worshiping. Some people probably weren't. Uh, giving. We can worship when we give. Uh, we, we worship when we listen to preaching and we consider what God has to say uh, to us about himself and about ourselves. And uh, one of the problems with, uh, you know, this idea of worship is when we come together on Sundays is that I think it confuses the idea of, of doing church and being church. See, worship can't be contained to a specific time or a specific place. It's something that is a lifestyle that we live of worshiping God. Another misconception is that it's all about the music. Probably the greatest misconception in the modern church today is that music and worship are synonymous. They are not. Uh, uh, worship is oftentimes associated more with entertaining uh, and talented musicians listening to them than it is with surrendering ourselves to the will of God. And, and closely related to that is the thought that worship is a, is a music style. You know, we use uh, terms like blended and contemporary and even traditional worship. We even use the, the word worship to describe the conflict we have over music styles. We call them worship wars. Now that's an oxymoron. Because I can pretty much guarantee you that people who are arguing over that aren't doing any worshiping. And, and worship is, is much more than the type of music that's played. Uh, it's not a service to be attended. It's a surrendered approach to life. We'll talk more about that. Number four, worship is primarily based upon my personal experience. You see, that's why the type of music is often so important. That's why it becomes a big deal. That's why we have, quote, 
worship wars because people are convinced that if they don't play my type of music, well, then I can't feel it as if feeling were some part of of worship. Now, feeling can be a part of worship, but that is not the defining reality of of worship. In fact, you know, God tells us that music is important. It's all through the scriptures. He tells us to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It is important, but it's but it's not the defining factor when it comes to to worship. And again, um, let me say that feeling positive in a worship service is not, doesn't necessarily mean that you have worshiped. And feeling negative in a worship service doesn't necessarily mean you haven't worshiped. What about what happens when you're convicted of sin? What if God gets a hold of your heart and starts showing you, you know, where you are, that you're really, that you're separated from Him, that you're lost? Or that you have something in your life that you need to repent of and you get very uncomfortable. Would you say that you haven't worshipped because of that negative experience? No. And again, closely related to, to these ideas is, is the, to personal experience is the idea that worship focuses on God to the exclusion of relationships with others. See, some people say, well, I'm just going to make it all about God. Well, well, that's good. And, and we should develop a relationship with God. But it can't be to the exclusion of other people. It, because God relates to us and he relates to us through other people. It's, it's very important to, to develop that relationship with God through your own prayer time and your Bible study and all those things. But we also have a relationship here with one another. That's one of the reasons we're gathered together. That's why we're not all home somewhere doing this on our own. We need to be with one another. And there, number six, there's no relationship between worship and obedience. Now, we probably wouldn't say this out loud but this is what we're really thinking sometimes in our minds is we're thinking it doesn't matter how we've lived our lives through the rest of the week. It's not going to impact our worship when we come here today. But let me tell you, it does impact your life. It does impact your worship. How you've lived throughout the week and how you will live in the coming week will impact your worship the following week. This idea that, that you can worship without striving to live a holy life is incorrect. The heartbeat of worship is obedience to Christ and his commands. And without obedience, worship may occur to some degree, but it's not going to be what God wants in a biblical sense. Number seven, worship does not include preaching. Again, some people think that, you know, it's not worship. Now we're not in worship. We, we did worship previously. Now we're not. But you see, it's the proclamation of the word of God that changes our lives. That God uses to show us where we are, how we need to respond to him, and how to live. And that is where real worship occurs is when we're responding to God. Now, these are things that worship is not. And that brings us to the question, okay, what is worship? 
Well, worship is, is a little hard to define. Why is it so difficult to define? Well, for one, because it's so broad and encompassing. I mean, it's difficult to try to get everything included in that. I find doing a series like this one of the most challenging things that we do when we're not just taking a specific passage and, and explaining it. But when we talk about something in general that covers the entire Bible, it becomes very difficult to try to select out what you're going to talk about. And, and this is a broad subject, and it's all through Scripture. And another thing is that there, uh, the Bible doesn't really give us, you know, a clear definition in Scripture. It doesn't say worship is this. We have to, we have to uh, extract that from the lives and from the examples that we see of people in the Bible. And so we see people worshiping and we find in their lives what is the elements of worship, how it works and how it functions. So this morning I, I want to share with you three simple, basic characteristics of worship. These are characteristics that we can all practice in our lives and, and engage in worship. And when we look at the, the lives of God's people in Scripture, one of the first things that we see is that worship is sacrificial obedience. Worship is sacrificial obedience. Now, there are many examples of this, but let's consider what Abraham says in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And did you get that word? We will worship and return to you. You may remember that Abraham and Sarah were chosen by God. And God made a, a, a promise to them because they were childless. They had no children. And God said, I'm going to give you a child. And they had to wait and they waited and they waited until they were very old, way past childbearing age. And finally, God allowed them to conceive and have a child. And it was an absolute miracle. And this child named Isaac was, was so valuable, so precious to them. This child that they had waited for all their lives. And the statement that we just read comes in the context of a three-day journey because God says to Abraham after he has given them this child, he says, I want you to take Isaac upon this mountain, Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What? What? This is This is unbelievable. How could this possibly be? Sacrifice our only son whom we've had after our 90s? You see, outside the biblical arena, Abraham's actions would appear the actions of a, of a lunatic or a madman. After all, who could even rationalize thinking about killing your child and calling it worship. Nevertheless, Abraham says, I'm going to worship. 
what? That's what he says. See, that's because worship is not an event. Worship is not something that we do for God. Worship is unbridled obedience to God, even when rational explanations aren't easily found. It's trusting God to do exactly what he says to do, even when we don't understand why he would make such a a, a command. Abraham was going because God told him to do it, not because he thought it was a good idea. Now think about, think about it. Abraham didn't possess a guitar. He didn't have a cart with a piano on the back. He had nothing that resembled with, relate to what we think of as worship. He's going up on this mountain. He's not going up there to sing. He's going up there to slit the throat of his only son. All he had to give God was his full obedience. And even if it meant taking his most precious possession, Isaac, Abraham had to make a decision. He had to decide what was of greatest worth. Was it his only son that God had given him? Or was it the God that had given him his only son? What's of greatest value? What's of highest priority? And Abraham believed that God was worthy of his trust. And he demonstrated that by his obedience. And he began his trip headed to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was where the temple would eventually be built centuries later. And you remember that in the end. That when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, that God sent an angel to stop him, to keep him from doing that. Because God knew that he was willing to be obedient. And God stopped him, and God provided a substitute sacrifice. There was a ram stuck in the thicket. And that ram became the offering in place of Isaac. That's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. Because, you see, all all of us were condemned to die because of our sin. And yet God gave his only son to die in our place. Now, you think it was difficult for for Abraham to give Isaac to God? How difficult was it for God to give his son for us? That's love. That's value. You're valuable. And see, if you understand God values you that much, if God loves you that much, see, what does it elicit from you? What does it call upon from you? We, we sing, we're singing songs this morning. You know what we're singing about? We're singing about what God did through his son. Why? Because it just elicits that worship from us. Centuries later, Jesus himself addresses this same idea in in Matthew uh, chapter 10 and verse 34. Listen to what he says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father 
and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He continues, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And do you know what Jesus is talking about there? He's talking about the difficulty of following him. The difficulty of the choice that we have to make. Because we can't put anything in front of God. We can't put mother or father or children or even our own lives in front of him. And like Abraham, you see, we have to make a decision. You must decide what is of greatest worth. For some, you see, that Jesus was talking to, he's talking here in Matthew to the Jewish people. And when they accepted Jesus as the Messiah and they began to follow him, you know what happened to them? Well, their families, for the most part, would reject them. Some of them would completely disown them, have nothing to do with them. Some of them lost their jobs as a result of believing in Jesus. And some of them even lost their lives. This was the cost of following Jesus. And he says, if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of me. And that's happening today. In this world in which we live, people are being rejected. And people are actually being killed because of their faith in Christ. In fact, it's happening more today than ever before in history. To follow Jesus means trusting him to the point of losing your, your family, your will, your desires, and to suffer for him even and lose your life if necessary. See, you love him. And you trust him. And in the end, you get your life. You get real life. It's a paradox. By losing your life, you get life. Real life. Eternal life. Lasting life. Quality life. The greater value. The greater worth in him. The heartbeat of worship is sacrificial obedience to God out of a heartfelt love for him. Now we've talked about, as in this series, we've talked about the word of God. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about obedience. Do you see all of those things are a vital part of worship because it's through the Bible that we learn about who God is, what he's like, what he's done. It's through prayer that we develop that relationship with him and grow closer to him. It's through obedience that we are learning to trust him and to walk with him and to see that he is faithful in all that he says and does. And you see, when we do these things in turn, it produces that obedience and that obedience out of a heartfelt love for God is worship. It's a lifestyle. 
It's not something that happens at 1045 on Sunday morning at this location. Worship is sacrificial obedience. Worship is a value judgment. Now, this is very closely related. Here's my question. What is most valuable to you? What's the absolute most valuable possession you have right now in your life? What do you hold dear above all else? Could be your family. Could be yourself. Could be a lot of things. Now, worship is both private, personal, and corporate. I want to focus just a little bit about on corporate worship. You see, in our relationship with God, we have to ask our question, ourselves a question, what is priority? Is God really priority? What's the most valuable use of our time? Do you know that the, the, the English word worship comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, it's a compound word, worth-ship, worth-ship. It's the worth-ship of God. It's understanding what God is worth, how valuable He is. And it's responding to that, that value that is God. And, and, and one of the reasons that God commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and he does command that, is that because in our gathering together and in our singing and in our praying and in our giving and in our preaching, we are renewing our minds in the real value of God. We're reminded of who God is. We're reminded of what he has done, how he loves us. We're reminded that he created us, that he gave us our life. And every good thing that we have, God has given to us. We're reminded that he has redeemed us, that he has bought us. He has bought us out of darkness, out of bondage, out of the chains. And he's brought us into a relationship with him, given us freedom. That we have an eternal hope in him. And you see, so as we see all of this, our love for him should be stimulated. Our, our appreciation, our understanding of his value ought to grow. And that out of that love ought to come obedience. And our love that is producing obedience is worship. So we need it. We need it. But in many churches today, I mean, we're at the point of practically begging people to come to church, to worship. And you see, there are so many things out there that compete with our love for God. I mean, think about it. There's some pretty powerful things. Ball games. Ball games are power. Sports is powerful. It's got a draw on us. It I mean, it's dominating our culture. There are all kinds of activities. Music, amusement parks, lakes, the mall, shopping, the bed. I mean, they're all things that, you know, compete with, with our love for, for Christ. They're, they're, they're powerful. And, and, and they're not really bad things. But they, they do compete. And we, and see, the problem is we, we come to a place where we have to make a decision. 
okay, which one is really more valuable? Is it is it more valuable for me to go and be with God's people and to spend this time renewing my mind and worshiping Him, or and loving Him, or is it more valuable for me to go to the ball game? It's a value decision. It's a value judgment that we all have to make. And and if the truth were told, many of us we have other gods that we love more than the real God. That I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying this is reality. There's just some things that we value more than this. It's 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 a reality. And, and worship is a value judgment, and all too often we find other things simply more valuable than God. In many ways, it's a for believers, it's a continuation of the battle that we faced when we were considering salvation. Do you remember when you were thinking about trusting Christ? Do you remember that there were likely things that you were uh, wrestling with about a particular activity, a particular sin that you were engaged in, something that you thought, can I give that up? Can I, am I willing to turn away from that and turn to God? And we wrestled with that and we struggled with it. And finally we just came to the place where we said we surrendered that to God and said, here, God, that's yours. I want to trust you. And in the moment of that surrender, what you found is that God gave you a liberty, a freedom, and a, and a, and a joy, you know, and changed your heart about it. So that wasn't dominating your life anymore. That always happens at the moment of surrender. And see, for us, sometimes when we come, we're, now we're not so much um, struggling with something that's negative, something that's really bad in itself, but sometimes we struggle with things that are good in themselves. But they still become, it still becomes a value judgment. Which one's really more valuable? And worship is making God the most valuable thing in life. Number three, worship is loving God. Now, this is this is where I want you to see how worship fits into the purpose of our church. Let me, let me put the purpose of our church on the screen once more time. The purpose of our church is to glorify God by fulfilling the great commission and the passion of the great commandment. Uh, you, you may have to let that soak in. Uh, we've we've brought this to you several times. I want to try to be a little more faithful about bringing that to you and thinking about it. And I hope it'll become more than words on a screen. I hope it'll become more than the purpose of a an organization, but it will become the purpose of us as God's people. To glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission through the passion of the Great Commandment. Let me break it down just a little bit for you. Let me introduce you, remind you of the Great Commission. That's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Sound familiar? 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if you break that down into the commands, here's what it looks like. Go make disciples. That's the command. How do we do that? We evangelize. That we, we, we share the gospel. And we have to do that. We have to be intentional. You can't just walk around and say, hopefully it's going to happen to us. That somebody's going to come up and say, hey, how do I, how do I have eternal life? How do I go to heaven? Now, we have to be intentional and evangelize people. And then we baptize. And see, when you baptize, those people are becoming a part of the family of God. They're identifying with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and with the church of Christ. And then we train. It's strategic. That's uh, teaching them all things that Christ has commanded them so that we understand what it is we're all about. And then what it is, we go and we make disciples. It's cyclical. We become disciples so that we can make disciples. And then let's look at it a little more in that cycle uh, from the, this next one, the Great Commission. It's all about the command is make disciples at every stage. First, we evangelize. It's salvation. Baptize. That begins spiritual growth. Then there's training. We're serving. And it, and it may be that we're suffering. Remember what happens sometimes when you trust Christ? It may be some suffering involved in that. And then we 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 mature. We go. We bear fruit. And it begins. It's a full cycle. This is This is what he's called us to. This is the Great Commission. And let me show you one other thing as it relates to this whole idea of, uh, of spiritual growth. The stages. Initially, you're an infant. Then as you grow, you become a child, then a young adult, and finally a parent. Let me ask you, what's your next step? Where are you? Well, how would you characterize yourself spiritually right now? The, the goal is to come all the way back and be a parent, to be a disciple that makes disciples. In a, and by the way, did you know that Jesus gave the Great Commission in the context of worship? If you go back a couple of verses in chapter 28, verse 16, he says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him... They what? They worshipped him. They worshipped him. They, when they saw the resurrected Christ, realizing who he is, they fell down and they worshipped him. An amazing thing. You see, the Great Commission and worship have a unique relationship. You really can't separate them. Evangelism is the catalyst that produces a life of worship, a lifestyle of worship. You know, it's like being back in in uh, elementary school. You remember building volcanoes, uh, model volcanoes out of paper mache or modeling clay? And then you would uh, put um, uh, a baking soda and vinegar in the mouth of that volcano to uh, simulate a, an eruption and, and you put that uh, baking soda in there. When you add the vinegar, it begins to bubble and to uh, spew up. And, and it's even more fun if you make it colored, you know, add some red to it, make it look like real lava. Nobody else likes to do this? Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, getting too much into that. <laughs> you see, evangelism 
is it's like the vinegar that ignites the dormant baking soda. Our love for God added to our love for people produces this evangelism. It, 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 it bubbles over. God's love and our love for people begins to bubble over, pour out, and, and infect other people. And what's the very, se- very first step of becoming a worshiper? You must be evangelized. You can't worship in a biblical sense unless you're really a believer. Jesus said you've got to worship in spirit and truth. If you don't have the spirit, well, then you can't worship in spirit and truth. You see, evangelism and worship have this unique relationship. Can you really be a, a true worshiper without being a passionate follower of Christ? What was the purpose? Why did Jesus come into this world? His purpose for coming into this world was to seek and to save that which is lost. He told his disciples, my food is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. He said that in the context of evangelizing the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. My my heart, my heart is for people. I love people. I came into this world to die on the cross for them. And friends, if you know God's heart, you cannot get close to God's heart without having a heart for lost people. You simply can't. You have to love people like he loves people. It's impossible otherwise. You see, most people never consider that the Bible is, is primarily a book about evangelism. You say, how's that? Take, take redemption out of the Bible. What do you have left? Nothing. It's all about redemption. God's story of redemption from the very beginning to the very end. That's all the story is. So if, if, if the main purpose of God, the main purpose of Jesus is to see people be redeemed and brought into a right relationship with him, shouldn't it be the, the purpose of the church as well? Shouldn't it be our heart? Friends, listen, that's why everything we do, all the decisions we have to make in the future, we have to always consider, are we doing what God wants? Are we following God's heart? And I'll guarantee you, it always goes with people. God loves people. God wants to see people redeemed. And all the things that we do, some things can be, can be good things in themselves, but they have to have at their heart this desire to see people come to a right relationship with him. And you see, God doesn't give us the Great Commission in some cold, impersonal command. He gives it to us in the context of worship. And that connects us with the Great Commandment. You know where that is? That's in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I think the the simplest and most accurate definition of worship is this. 
love God. Love God. If you get love God right, everything else will work. Everything else will fall in place. What does it mean to love God? It means that you value him above all things. It means that you trust him for salvation. It means that you grow spiritually. It means that you serve him and others. It means that you suffer for him if necessary. It means that you give up your life if necessary. It means you be fruitful. It means you make disciples who in turn will make disciples. You magnify God and you multiply others. That's what he says. I don't think there's a better illustration of what it means to to love God than to look at an incident that happened in the life of Peter right after the resurrection of Jesus. They had seen Jesus after he had been raised from the dead. But it had been a, quite a while since they had seen. There was 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And it had been some time since they had seen him. And Peter, one day, is sitting around waiting. And he says, I'm going fishing. And by that, he meant, I'm going back to the fishing business that I had before I met Jesus. Peter was a leader. And all the other disciples, they started following him. And they all got in a boat, went out on the Sea of Galilee, and they began to to work fish. They worked all night long and caught absolutely nothing. It was early in the morning. They're, They're coming back to the shore, and there's a stranger standing out on the shore. And he cries out to them, Did you catch anything? And they yell back, No! And he says, Cast your nets on the right side of the boat. Now, they didn't know at this time that this was the Lord. This was Jesus. They didn't know that Jesus had supernaturally directed all the fish to the other end of the Sea of Galilee. And at that moment, they didn't know that Jesus had redirected all the fish back over to the right side of the boat where they were. And for some reason, whatever it was, they throw their nets back out into the water on the right side and they catch a catch that is so large they can't even get it dragged back up on the boat. It's an incredible thing. At that moment, John looks over and he says, it's the Lord. And Peter realizes it's the Lord and he just jumps in, code and all, into the water and comes running to, to the Lord. Meanwhile, Jesus has prepared a meal and he invites them to sit down to breakfast. And they're sitting there, and and, and I'm sure that Peter was feeling a little uncomfortable, feeling full of kind of guilt, and 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 because you see, the last time he had seen Jesus alive, he had denied him three times, and it's kind of like the elephant in the room, you know, the big thing you don't want to talk about, <laughs> and 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 finally Jesus speaks speaks up, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? You say, what, 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 what are these? Well, it could be the, you know, the boats, the nets, the fish, the fishing business. Or it could be, do you love me more than these, the, these other disciples? Do you love me more than they, than they love me? 
Because Peter had made the brag that he had, he, that he loved Jesus more than, than they did. And he was going to be more faithful to them, to him than they would be. But whatever it was, he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me genuinely? And when he asks him that, he uses the word agapo. It's a, it's the supreme kind of love, the highest kind of, of love, the God kind of love. And, and he replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Only he used a lesser word. He used the word phileo. I love you in a brotherly way. I love you with respect. It's a lesser word. I, he couldn't say, I love you supremely because he had just denied the Lord a short while ago, three times. And he, and he couldn't say that with any kind of integrity. And it was like saying, well, I like you a lot. And so Jesus says to him a third time, a second time, he said, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He calls him his old name because he's kind of acting like his old self. And he says to him again, using the word agapo, he says, yes, uh, yes, Lord, I, I love you. And again, Peter uses that lesser word, phileo. You know I like you a lot. And Jesus probes a third time. And he says, this time he says, Simon, do you even like me a lot? And Peter was grieved. Why is he grieved? Is it because he's being asked these three times? It's because Jesus is actually questioning the level of his love. Where do you, how do you really love me? Lord, do you know all things, he says. You know I love you. You know I like you a lot. Peter can't appeal to his actions. He has to appeal to the omniscience of the Lord. You know. You know my heart. I know I can't prove it with my actions, but you know my heart. Let me ask you a question. What kind of love was Jesus seeking from Peter? What kind of love does God seek from you? What kind of love does God seek from you? Is it an emotional love? Is it a sentimental thing? What is it he's asking of us? You know what? Sometimes there are times when we just don't feel very loving toward God. Isn't it true? There's sometimes we come in here and we just don't feel very excited at all, very emotional in any way, do we? And we just can't, we just can't work it up, can we? God is not trying to talk to us about our emotions. What is he, what is he talking about? He's talking about our actions. And, we, and as, by, as we look further in this little uh, scenario here in John chapter 21, we, we see uh, what it means to love God. In verse 21, or chapter 21 and verse 18, he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will, will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. 
Listen, verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. He says, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, you'll die for me. Whoa. You take up your cross. And, and you know what happened according to tradition? Peter was crucified. Only he was crucified upside down. And, and it goes on in verse 19. And he says, follow me. You know what that is? That's obedience. When Jesus said that and he got up, Peter literally got up and began to follow Jesus. Do you see that we have come full circle? We've come back to sacrifice and obedience. We've come back to a value judgment. Do you love me more than these? And we've come back to loving God. If you love me, if you value me, then you are going to go and do my work, which my heart is to see people come to know me. You're going to fulfill the Great Commission. And you're going to do it in the passion of the Great Commandment. And you will glorify me in so doing. Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you a worshiper? I mean, is it, is it, is it demonstrated by sacrificial obedience? Are you a worshiper? Is it demonstrated by your value judgments? Do you consistently value God above everything else? Do you love God? Do you have his heart for people? So my question is, where are you? And what is your next step? What do you need to go to become more like Christ? What, what needs to happen in your life? You know, maybe for some of us, you need to make the decision to trust Jesus. You need to, to become a, a follower before you can be, even become a worshiper. You need to recognize that God loves you, that he died in your place for your sin, and that you can have eternal life through faith in him. Some of you, you've been Christians, you've made a profession of faith, you've been baptized, you've been a member of church for a long time, but you realize today as you're you're hearing this, God, you know, I haven't valued you very highly. I put other things in front of you. And Lord, today I'll make the choice to value you above all things. Maybe there's something God is asking you to do. Maybe you know you need to do it, and and it'll cost you to do it. But you need to make a sacrifice to be obedient to the Lord. And maybe some of you, you just need to love God. You need to let God ask you, do you love me more than these Do you love me more than these things that compete for your attention? So make the decision. Father, we thank you this morning for...